Hello everyone, welcome to Even More Eyes, the podcast that is, Jesus Christ, what the hell am I saying? <laughs> Not so easy, is it? I started, spe- I started speaking and then my brain glitched entirely, oh my god. <laughs> it is, I have to admit, based after last right. week, it is a very kind of weird thing to be putting out, because you listen, you listen to so weird. many podcasts and you're just like, uh, oh, okay, yeah, it's just an introduction bit, but yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be quiet. <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Even More Eyes, to our, our second episode of Nostalgia Hits Differently. Um, what are we going to be talking about today, James? So today we're going to be moving forward. Last week we looked at classic uh, era Disney, and this time we're going to be moving forward 30 years to the late 1980s um, with the uh, with Little Mermaid. Uh, we'll also then be going into the 90s with uh, looking at Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, uh, and finally Pocahontas. What we'd like to do is, uh, in a slightly different format to last week, talk a bit about what we remember about these films to begin with as children, and then, of course, go into what has changed now. So we start with The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. I guess? Yes, yeah. So, Emo, <sighs> okay, what do so you... what do I remember about The Little Mermaid? <laughs> I remember as a kid watching it, I was really enamored with Sebastian as a character because I thought his capacity for composing was just unparalleled. The whole under the sea musical number was absolutely fantastic. I was a little less interested with all the other things that were happening around Prince Eric and with Ariel and the whole hoarding thing and part of your world. I don't think it really registered in my mind precisely what was going on with Ariel and her father and the entire kingdom of um, Atlantis, but definitely Sebastian and the musical numbers and all the other stuff that happened, absolutely freaking loved it. How about you? Um, I think, yes, similar in a way. Like I didn't really care too much about the sort of aerial character or Eric or the, the sort of the romancy element of it. Though I do remember that the scene between Ariel and Triton where he goes into the treasure trove, I was quite frightened of that. Literally, this man turns up and just... <laughs> Well, the her father turns up and just starts raging and destroying things and her reaction when she's so upset. Uh, the thing, I guess the thing that really stood out for me was, uh, or the character that really stood out for me, though, was Ursula. Uh, this is, uh, yet again, like we were talking about last week with the villains, there was just this this larger than life absolutely you know yeah. fantastic laugh she's absolutely hilarious <laughs> uh you know just just make it again a bit like uh, in the vein of maleficent just sort of making fun of everyone yeah absolutely and, and she had her own kind of agenda and stuff like that so uh where are you now with it after having watched this uh well what would be probably 20 something odd years later um Where I am right now is I kind of noticed, I think maybe because I was watching particularly for the podcast Mm -hmm. and also with all the stuff we talked about in last week's episode with Ursula and all the bad guys, I started really noticing more about just the background of the storyline and what the bad guys were trying to do and what the protagonists were trying to do. And like you said, okay, first of all, let's just get this out of the way. Ursula was right. Exactly what she said is what happened. I think some of the things that Ursula did that were absolutely despicable is 
in as much as she gave Ariel the fine prints, she obviously manipulated that entire situation to her maximum advantage, knowing full well that Ariel had the biggest case of FOMO I have ever seen in my entire life. You know, the whole well, what are for, the for, for the for the uninitiated part of your world speech for the uninitiated what's FOMO um, fear of missing out okay. but, <laughs> but you know she had the biggest case of FOMO I have ever seen in my life and the entire premise of you know someday I'll be part of your world it's this whole idealism of the other right and um, <laughs> the character of Ariel obviously I think it was true to life that she was young and she was naive and she was idealistic and now that I was much older in as much as I didn't like the fact that the father was a little too domineering and a, and controlling her to some degree he was also absolutely right as well like the world of man was not safe uh, yeah when she went up to the surface people were literally eating her yeah. friends she literally sat at a dinner table with fish on the menu and I was confused I was like do you not know that these are the denizens of your kingdom <laughs> being consumed and mass out here on the surface. Yeah. Like, why, why, why else do you think your father would be concerned I, I, about yeah. you going out onto the surface of people who literally eat the members of your kingdom? Maybe the mer people themselves will also eat fish. I don't know. That feels like weirdly cannibalistic, considering yeah. that they're like half fish. But I'm beginning to ramble no, now. No, no, so no. I'm just, well, just going to. Yeah, I was, was going to say. I have so many yeah, thoughts. I, I, I was going to say. I'm so glad that you said that because the one thing that really occurred to me was you have the under the sea song and like you say that there are this real mix of uh the fish and the kind of marine life is very much in tandem with the with the mer world i mean there is a bit where the yeah. i think the king when he comes in he he rides these dolphins and it's not quite clear okay well how you know sentient yes. are they but then you so you like you said you go into the human world and you have the le poisson song <laughs> It's a, it's an absolute <laughs> mer it was this moment so you're sort of sitting there watching it and going okay all right you know and then and i completely because that was the other thing coming back to this i had completely forgotten about that scene and it just comes forward yes, in the most excessive mad he's got the pots and and you've got crabs falling out of them and all this stuff <laughs> and you just think yeah. oh my god it, it really is um in the end aren't the mer people right to be fearful of the humans and this is what occurred to me with this one though and and is the fact that the world itself is very kind of asymmetrically presented the human world is never really questioned in in the same kind of way like the the other culture is purely looked at in idealized terms even with this scene where they're literally murdering because we can only assume yeah. that these things are sentient to some degree as we've seen them in the earlier songs and in the earlier parts I, it was it was absolutely bizarre to me that they that they'd set up this whole thing of, you know, like you said, he he comes and he's like they kill people and they they capture our kind in their nets and whatever he says, and there's up until that Le Poisson song, you think okay, well maybe you know I know they kind of eat fish, but it's not really drawn attention to, and then this rabid, crazy slaughter. <laughs> and cooking and all the rest of it is yeah. happening so i'm so glad that you because that's something i definitely noticed as well i think also just to, to slightly 
come back to what you were saying about Triton as a character. The the other thing that really stood out for me is the fact this is a sort of pre-Finding Nemo um, story where I think it's the first time, other than the evil stepmothers that we see in... Uh, Snow White and and in um, Sleeping uh, not Sleeping Beauty uh, Cinderella, this is the first time in the Disney kind of um, relationship that we see what or, or there's an explicit message to parents about well you know you, you can't be authoritarian you can't be too disciplinarian in this you've got to recognize that your children should be yeah. fun and free and so there's so both with Triton and Sebastian uh, there's this kind of a real sort of sense that they move there's an arc in the film which is saying don't be too much on your kids don't you know uh and, and even yeah. i think i think they otherwise you might drive your children away yes or something. yes and yeah. i i think that's kind of understandable that, that they would have she would have been driven away <laughs> because of the way he he acts yeah. with her and so but that i don't think the the aggressiveness the possessiveness necessarily is really confronted i suppose or his or the way he goes about it except the fact he goes oh well go off then you know and be with your prince no vetting of the prince of course you know he's he's ipso facto uh you know very very nice yeah which is just this whole idea of like you just mindlessly accepting whoever you want to fall in love with and the thing is um with this story as well even from the very beginning it was very clear that finding a wife was somehow on the agenda for prince eric and he had somehow decided that his heart was set on this one lady that saved him from the sea and who he saw in a sort of haze when he woke up and i'm like yeah it's true that this lady may have saved you but what's the guarantee that she wasn't already somebody else's wife you might have wanted to meet her to give her your gratitude or something, which I can fully understand. But outside of that, I was very concerned as to what sort of message that was meant to be. It was once again that sort of instant love trope that Disney has almost built its brand on. You yeah. know, if two people see themselves and they are in any way slightly compatible, then love is somehow, what's the term, um, inevitable. Yes. And uh, I was just tired. Like, I, I think... Why? I think also that, that what came kept coming back is so it couldn't just be that she was was just beautiful because otherwise I know he when he wakes up after she saves him there's the kind of the cast of the light behind her we can clearly see her right <laughs> I know he's sort of uh, waterlogged or whatever it is he's, he's slightly drowned so he's drowsy but it's the voice thing isn't it but that's just another attribute her voice acts as yet another condition her singing voice specifically acts as another condition of her of her beauty yeah absolutely so moving on from that let's go to the next one now because once again there are so many things to unpack and i'm fully aware of the fact that we have to kind of discuss four four <laughs> films. films in the span of this podcast so we move on to beauty and the beast now okay i'm just going to let you go first like first thoughts what, what were your thoughts as a child <laughs> The thing that stand, stood out for me was the music in this one. Just quite a lot of memorable numbers. <laughs> a lot of memorable numbers that I can't remember. I only saw it a week ago. Uh, yeah, uh, Be Up, Be Our Guest. <laughs> I remember that. Taylor's Oldest Time. Gaston. I remember that stuff. There was something about the, the relationship between Beast and Belle 
never to kind of judge a book by its cover. I know that is kind of the explicit messaging really of the film. And that's one of the things I took away from it. The other thing, though, was in terms of characters that really stood out was, once again, I was kind of geared toward the the objects and things like the Lumiere and uh, Cogsworth and, and stuff like that, yeah. who, who had more of the, yeah. the sort of the comedy side. That's most. Obviously, mm. because that's what the side characters mm. are always yes. for. Yeah. Know, just to make things funny while the rest of the romantic subplot mm. is happening. So yeah, as that's what I remember as a kid. But the most, I think, the most evocative thing uh, was was the music. How about you? I mean, before I watched the movie, I was thinking to myself, what do I actually remember about this mm. film? And ironically, what I could remember from being a kid was Gaston. Mm. I just remembered how much I wanted to punch him in the face <laughs> because he was just the single most obnoxious character I had ever seen in my entire life. And I, and I also remember how happy I was when he plummeted to his death. <laughs> like these were the things going through my mind as a child. I hated his gut so much that I just remember how absolutely happy I was that he died. I wasn't even concerned about the fact that the that like the prince had been hurt and turned in whatever that didn't ma- that didn't matter to me all I knew was that I hate this guy mm. and I want him to die and when he died I was like yes yes thank you very much that's all I needed from you to do in this movie whatever you want to do after this point is completely your business I don't care um, but, mm-hmm. but then that actually transitions almost nicely to when I was watching it again this time, because obviously in between I had time to process it and there was this time I thought to myself, was Beauty and the Beast really a tale of Stockholm Syndrome? But then when I was watching it again, she didn't exactly fall for him until he actually started treating her somewhat nicely, Mm. which was not really the case of, you know, someone just falling in love with and making excuses for their captor. Yeah. Um, So that actually made me rethink, which was something I didn't think was going to happen. But outside of that, now, I have so many things that I want to say, and I know I'm going to go on a ramble, so I'm just going to hold the brakes on yeah. that so that you get a chance to speak. I, that, that, <laughs> so. that was that was something else I, I was aware of because there has been, I think in the last, I don't know what it has been, at least the last decade, this discussion about uh, Stockholm Syndrome in Beauty and the Beast. And actually, I think, having watched the film again, I, I don't think it, it's not defensible really as in like to hold that position i think first of all she decides to stay in the castle at the beginning and he didn't really expect it it's not like he went to her you you must stay here in place of your father he doesn't say that she she makes that offer the other thing is that um there is a point when he gets really aggressive with her when she goes to the west wing she leaves and there's you know other than getting caught in the um obviously with the wolves and then there's this whole business of he comes and protects her and then bear in mind he gets attacked and and i'd forgotten this completely he attacks the wolves gets injured she puts him on the horse and takes him back and there's no indication that really he if the thing with the wolves hadn't happened she just wouldn't have gone home exactly the other thing to say is that he eventually lets her go at the end of the or toward the end of the film yeah and there is no suggestion that she will return there's no suggestion that she'll come back there is the the thing with the mirror that maybe she could you know he could she can look back but he accepts that she's leaving 
and that's it. And and, and if it hadn't been for yeah. an aggressive mob going to to hunt him down, there's no real indication that she would have gone back. So the whole thing with Stockholm syndrome, I think, is yeah. is questionable. The only th- other thing I would add to this, the last thing I yeah. would add to this, there is something else that's called I think it's called Lima syndrome, which is the reverse, where the uh, captor f- uh, falls for their captive. That, I think, is maybe arguable yeah. in the sense, of course, he does start yeah. to become sympathetic to her plight. Yeah. Um, whether he falls in love with her, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't know whether he says at one point, I, I think I'm falling in love with her. Uh, but the point is that, that that, I think, maybe is 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 more arguable. So, yeah, that I think on the whole Stockholm Syndrome question, if we're talking about where you know discourse around these films have moved and and this attempt to say okay there are some problems in the original disney kind of or even in the sorry the renaissance disney period i don't see it personally based on the film i don't see it now time to get into like an immoral ramble because mm. I have so many thoughts. Okay, first of all, starting from the premise of the movie, we are meant to believe that this enchantress that had powers um, just decided to bewitch an 11-year-old boy for not letting her into their house. What? Like, literally, they said the prince had existed for 10 years and he was going to become permanently a beast on his 21st birthday, which means he was enchanted as an 11-year-old. After the people had been enchanted in the house, I, I got really confused as to, okay, which of these pieces of furniture was a person and which one was just a piece of furniture? Like, did you also make the existing pieces of furniture able to move? Or because there were, there were, there were obviously things in that house before you converted people into things in that house. So it's like, how much of these were things that already existed in the house? And how much of these are things that were converted from people? Off shooting from that, you remember when the people broke into the house mm, and mm. then there was a lot of like furniture fighting them. Some of that furniture got destroyed. Was that furniture getting destroyed or were those people that were like killed? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. Like, I, 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 I had I a weird think sense of like... think of that, yeah. No, I don't, think, I don't think you're meant to think about like any of that. And then finally, there is this whole thing. I mean, there, this is one thing that I also found really, really, really annoying. There is a, a very obviously flamboyant character who is basically the Gaston simp. And oh, that guy who uh, follows Gaston around le, and basically le, like blows smoke up his arse. And le fou, le we could, we, like whatever his name is. It was very obvious from like the coding and the presentation of the character that he was meant to be a queer character. But he just seemed to be this simple-minded idiot. And it seemed almost like everyone else in that village was a simple-minded idiot, which is why I cannot really blame Belle for wanting to leave. Because Mm -hmm. everyone did not believe in the existence of the beast and was willing to commit a man into a mental um, asylum. And then five minutes later, Belle proves that the beast exists and they all do a complete 180 to let's go hunt the beast that you were all convinced five minutes ago did not exist. What's wrong with all of you? Like, if this beast really existed, he hasn't bothered any of you for 10 bloody years, and now you've all decided unanimously that he's a threat because you saw him in, like, a mirror one time. Are you shitting me? Yeah. but I, I, I had so many questions. I was so, I was so bothered by so many things. <laughs> but I realized that I've been rambling for, like, close to, like, five minutes now. So I'm just going to let you talk because I'm so pissed. <laughs> But I, I do think that was kind of the it, it, when, when we talk about the sort of the people in the film, the townsfolk, that sort of sense of provincialism, I think, was beefed up in that way. I think you're meant to look at them as simple minded, 
uh, conformist uh probably a bit illiterate i know there's a, a a bookshop isn't there or a library or whatever it is that's in in the town the way i read that actually was funny because this film for me really stood out as a kind of critique of the original kind of films so one thing that occurs to me is that to connect it a bit with what we're just talking about and to go off from there is this idea and i know i've kind of sustained this a little bit is is the the mindless masses that we we've seen in other films that, that, that people are subservient to a monarchy of some form and in this you have it sort of both ways so on the one hand you've got the townsfolk who are just like the mob basically and they're just conformist to the trends of physical uh, attraction so i, I was kind of weird because there were those you know the three women that are in it who are kind of going around the town and they fawn after gaston they seem to me to yeah, form that, I, that, yeah, the, that idea of oh well this is the this is the idealized woman she's simpering after her partner and for me gaston stands as a yes. kind of anti-prince but then also he does exactly the same thing he sees bell so coming back to Cinderella a bit, he sees Belle at the beginning of the film and thinks, I want her and I'm going after her and I should be her. And and everything about him still has, I mean, yes, the, yes, yes. the hunter, the, the guy who, you know, rides the horse and so on. So already for me, and then when Belle comes out and she's she's she doesn't accept any of this, she's already an outsider because of her father, Mad Maurice. So she's already used to being on the margins. There, there seemed to, but while being again, yes, she conforms to the conventional attractive, uh, but she, she, yeah. Plus, literally everyone in town was saying that she is so pretty and she should just get with Gaston yes, already. Yes. So, so, so there is, there's a kind of critique there. But to come back to what you were saying about the the other side of this, the way I saw it is that the people living in the castle, they are subservient to the real monarch. He's still a royal. He still has these you know uh clearly has some lands and and has a particular uh, th- those i guess uh like an estate and uh whatever but but that th- this is actually leads me to the sort of discussion about where beauty and the beast i think does massively fail the character of the beast is given both a desire a want his motivation is to get out of his situation by any means possible yeah right sort of um but his mm. need is, of course, to uh, be sympathetic, to be understanding, to see the beauty in someone else, but not beauty. I mean, like it said, the beauty that lies within um, rather than yeah. uh, on the outside, because that's the whole thing, isn't it? He, yeah. he with the Enchantress, he only sort of begs forgiveness when he sees that she's this beautiful woman in reality, that she's not the, the crippled mm-hmm. old hag. Um, but where I think the film then fails for Belle, it gives her a want she wants out. She wants, like she says in that another big song, I want more than this provincial life. Uh, yeah. And then once again, shoehorns her into becoming, I think, quite instrumental to his release from the from the curse. It isn't clear yeah. to me, really. Someone who has this kind of aspirations, want this horizon, that her ending up with him is the answer to her desire. It just seems to me she's moved a couple of, like a mile from the town and she could live in a castle with him and everyone else being served on for the rest of her life, perhaps. Is this really, <laughs> is this really the, 
the 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 kind of this is this is the most you want to achieve this this is i mean technically she left the provincial town Mm. (laughs) she did leave but but i i I just felt like this this for me was was the the sort of failing of it seemed to me to be one of the the issues of the film and i and i think it it, the same as happened with ariel is it all just ends up back on the straight and narrow you know it just it, it ends Romance is the answer. Absolutely, you know, yeah. and I understand it's um, a romantic film. There's there's a whole other aspect to this as is, well, yeah. like where she she kind of gets it both ways, where or not gets it both ways. She kind of <laughs> when he transforms, he suddenly becomes this. Oh my god, he's like an Adonis, you know, he, he, the hair and everything, and it's just like, oh, okay, well, yeah, it's a good thing he stuck it out. <laughs> really, that scene. So not only is it the beauty found me. within, you know, like it, like it, they tried to put out. That scene bothered mm. me. In fact, the entire thing bothered me because I have this little note in my notepad mm. that says, "Beauty and the Beast" is Disney taking princesses' love of animals a little too far. Um. <laughs> Beauty and the beast, beauty well, and the bestiality. <laughs> exactly, he was like, hmm, that was basically what I was thinking about. Outside of that, the other thing that really got to me was the fact that she was literally there when he transformed. Mm. It's not like she left the room and came back and saw someone else. You were there when he transformed. Why are you shocked that that's him? <laughs> like, are you daft? <laughs> Like you were there. <laughs> yeah. It's like what like like you had to look into his eyes to confirm. What? <laughs> you were literally there. Like you saw his body parts shift. <laughs> I was I was like, okay, this is the one scene that's making me question your actual intelligence because all this time we've been given this idea that you're smart, but like you okay. <laughs> but anyway, um so the next one is Aladdin, right? Okay, um, now for Aladdin, right? Mm. Disney knew what they had done, which is why at the beginning of that movie, there was a nice disclaimer about um, mm. racist depictions of people from the Middle East. And I was like... <laughs> yeah. before, before, before we get to that, though, I, I think because, yeah, that, that stood out for me big time. And I, and I think that is, oh that is something that's interesting going back now. But before we get to that, what do you remember about this film? Okay, the first thing I can remember when i started watching the movie was oh i can still remember the whole magic flying carpet scene of a whole new Mm -hmm. world because that's really what stuck with me like most of the other stuff that happened afterwards i honestly had no recollection whatsoever so i guess maybe like the i think what i'm starting to notice now is that for most of these movies it was the musical scores and like the um, happy numbers that really stuck in my mind as a kid because then again i was a child and i don't think being able to follow the plot line was primarily my concern i remember like a few things about um, avoiding the guards in the marketplace uh flying on the magic carpet and then that was really all i could remember about the movie so i kind of went into it with like an almost fresh perspective i guess but generally i had positive associations with the movie i just knew that when i watched it the first time i kind of enjoyed Mm. it and i knew that i that i liked how the movie progressed and got to the end so how about you yeah i mean the the big thing that stood out to me was uh robin williams the genie was definitely 
the thing that was most vivid in my mind and and like friend like me uh was just such a wonderful sort of song i suppose i liked all the exciting stuff in running around the the city i guess like the opening sequence with him yeah that there was the stuff like that but mainly i think yeah it was it was uh robin williams doing just all the different voices transforming all the time uh riffing um oh yeah and, and the music yeah. i think yeah once again it was the i think the scores that really do i, I mean uh, the other thing i should say yeah it gave me a clear and sophisticated understanding of what people are like in the middle east um <laughs> <laughs> I really thought Agrabah was a real place. So, yeah, I I think to to come Uh, to it then, when putting this on Disney Plus uh, and just having that the the sort of black screen with the white writing going, we're really sort of like, you know, you should rather than get rid of this film because it's a family favourite of of kids probably who grew up in the 90s uh, in in a certain part of the world, uh, we, 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 we are sort of saying that it's basically racist um yeah. and uh you could but enjoy yeah. the show <laughs> <laughs> um coming coming back to this um i i actually i mean it, it, i remember at university studying edward said and orientalism and i think this is for the for the 90s and and for pop culture is, is an absolutely classic example of orientalism um so th- but this is a land of kind of like you know fire breathers people who lay on needles bazaars uh, mystical deserts you know caves filled with treasures uh, everyone's kind of of out for themselves vicious nasty subservient so yeah very 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 yeah. regressive a difficult difficult watch and i actually think the film um maybe there's an element to it where coming back to robin williams where it sort of you you lean into that sort of what he's doing the postmodern he's trying to bring in all these kind of pop cultural references so you've got like jack nicholson and Bill yeah. buckley and stuff like that um yeah. and you kind of just you maybe you stick with that than the rest of all this very very um yeah horrible racist uh stuff yeah yeah how about you uh okay like there were so many things i could have talked about regarding the representations of people from the middle east and the character of aladdin and the ineptitude of the sultan and then the general cartoon foolishness and violence of the entire world but for the sake of the podcast i just decided to like zero in my focus on just jasmine Mm, mm -hmm. as a character and just think okay what is prince jasmine's role here and i think realistically out of every disney princess we've seen so far she is the most um, salvageable because she's not an idiot she stands up for herself multiple times Mm. she um obviously she does something reckless by leaving the m castle walls to see what's on the outside which is another thing that connects her to the previous two which is that desire to see beyond what they have um and this desire to go outside and escape the confines of their circumstances and you know the feeling of being trapped in circumstances that she doesn't quite like especially because once again with jasmine as with many of the other main disney characters there's this whole focus on you know getting married and getting settled down and blah 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 and she's like yeah i don't really want that i want to see more about the world and obviously the instant love trope kicked in when she escaped the castle and then um, aladdin rescued her from getting her hand chopped off for picking an apple because apparently that's what happens in the middle east but um how about yeah i mean i think i agree definitely agree with that um 
there's a definite sense of trying to make her the most uh, forthright, the most independent. She clearly is trying to break with the conventions of her society. There's a whole thing about at the end, about well, no, throughout actually about choice. And I, I think one of the 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 best scenes in it is where uh, Ali Ababwa turns up and they're all talking about her, and she just comes in. She's like, uh, you know, I'm not some prize here to be won. She's also someone who is capable of using her. The, the, the un, she has an understanding of that that physical attraction because she uses it a few yes, times. But, I mean, she yeah. uses it at the end as a kind of way of um, distracting, distracting Jafar. Jafar. Yeah, uh, and she uses yeah. other points to kind of upbraid the uh, the princes. Uh, the only thing I would say is again there's like you say there's that kind of instant falling in love though they do have a conversation where at least yes where and, and <laughs> i think it was it was kind of a lead on from uh, beauty and the beast in a way which is that at least suddenly these couples are getting together or these love interests are getting together and starting to actually at least see something else beyond the physical and and even though yes you get the whole kind of he looks at her she looks at him and there's that kind of you know spark of attraction but they have that they have that joint conversation about they understand being trapped and and so on and i guess in a sense they both help each other though really and it's unsurprising because it's aladdin's story that he uh realizes of course that yes he wants to get out of this type of life he wants to be in the palace he wants to be out of the palace but of course the real need underneath all of this which is quite unique for i mean it's again continuing on from the beast uh he needs to realize that he has you know worth within himself that that's his his need in this film yeah for jasmine yeah. I, I guess it kind of slightly gets lost i mean you she cho- she gets to choose she gets an affirmation she, does, she gets yeah. an affirmation of what she's been saying throughout the whole film which is i need to choose the part yeah. it's arguable at the end i mean obviously he will become sultan but they kind of ride off on the, the carpet so maybe they yeah. won't do so much sultan stuff uh but yeah, yeah i i think that um definitely there's a growing confidence i think in these films to start saying okay uh these women have motivation there's also a much greater surety of self yes and what it means to get there it is like you say it's it's sublimated to the disney trope brand of uh Mm. they must fall in love and they must get with the man at the end um yeah, that's the thing. I think the whole... I, I don't think Disney really gets to escape that until, like, further down the line. But, I mean, we would discuss that by the time we, we get to, like, the more contemporary Disney princesses. I mean, that will be maybe, like, part three or four of yes. this um, series. Outside of that, like, I think the major issue I had with um, Aladdin as a movie, like you said, it was mostly just the misrepresentation of um, the Middle East and this very twisted, um, jaded view of, you know, people who are supposed to be backwards or something like that. And the thing is, saying that, you know, I'm using it almost as a perfect segue because it connects very nicely to our final consideration, Mm -hmm. which is Pocahontas. Um, But before we get into, like, the critique, really, um, starting off with what we thought about the movie... Um, I would give you the first go. <laughs> oh, what did you remember? Um, 
lots about this one. I, I guess I mean the thing that the things what I really remember. I mean there there was stuff like that again the music and the animation really stood out to me. Colors of the wind, uh, mine, mine, mine. There are a few scenes. The scene of the waterfall. Um, I think the other thing that occurred to me, and I think we'll definitely get into this, is there is a sense, to, there was a memory of this film very much about saying, oh, you know, both sides are sort of as bad as each other. Uh, it's just about trying to find some common links and we can settle the uh, the problems. Um, that's something that did, did sort of occur to me and i think the clearest example of that is the savages song yeah where they're both yeah. you know screaming at each other that they're you know each side is different from the other and there is a sense yeah. of trying to put this on to oh you know can't we all just get along do we have to kind of talk about you mm. know do we can't we see the commonalities with each other um there are there have been some big rethinking of that upon watching this again um and and in quite unexpected ways actually so yeah, but that that those are the things I remember most vividly. How about you? Yeah, for me, um, I think the first time I watched Pocahontas, once again, much like you, I was kind of blown away by a bit about like the um, animation, especially like the animation of Pocahontas's hair in the wind, and you know, um, jumping off from the top of the waterfall, and you know, the antics with Miko and the pug and all that stuff. To me. Watching it was almost like seeing a more visual representation of stories of colonialism. Because if you think about it, I mean, in case anyone listening to this podcast isn't aware, I'm from Sub-Saharan Africa. And <laughs> and um, the story of colonialism is almost entirely woven into the fabric of like the history of Sub-Saharan Africa. So seeing some sort of representation of what the colonialist mindset was like was actually kind of startling to me. This idea of like the people on the other side being savages. And, you know, I think I still remember how much I loved the Colors of the Wind song because the very first line of it was like, you think you own whatever land you land on. And I would never forget how that line stuck in my brain. I was like, that is literally it. Is That's what the whole colonialist empire expansion was about it just going to other people's lands and claiming it for your own because you have this sense of entitlement that the entire planet is yours to conquer which obviously was very clearly represented in the movie through like the character lord ratcliffe when he was you know singing about how everything was his to conquer and stuff like that i just remember being like a young kid and watching that scene and being like oh so that's how they thought about it that's what I remember thinking as a child when I first watched Pocahontas. And then when I watched it again, I mean, some of those thoughts were still there, but they weren't now in the forefront. I was now thinking more about how Disney had done a complete 180, especially as I had watched this just after Aladdin. Like Disney had done this complete 180 as to the representation of the other race because there was this sense of like earthbound mysticism. You know, they have shamans that can um, sense things in like the smoke. You have like Pocahontas casually having a conversation with a tree woman. There was this sort of like magical they are not quite like us, but they are actually a little more special and more connected to the earth. Mm. 
so to me that's what really jumped out to me this whole like noble savage representation obviously the conversation about, about them being a savage was explicitly referenced in the movie but the representation themselves through the cinematic pieces and through the um, imagery and the colors and the attitudes and everything was this whole sense of there is a sort of nobility in their way of oh, life yes. that yeah, you know time. the that the other people cannot quite connect to thanks to their greed and yes. thanks to their yes. avarice yes. and stuff yeah. like that yeah. so yeah. In many ways, it was another form of misrepresentation as well, but it was like benevolent misrepresentation to really contrast against the greed and the white people coming yes. in to exploit and dig up gold and do it all for fame and yeah. glory and stuff like that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I felt very similar that there's so many sort of, it's a bit disconnected, a bit disjointed in a way, because on the one hand, mm. there's definitely an attempt to draw a form of equivalence so, for example, at the beginning of the film, yeah, you absolutely. had the the ship and all the stuff, you know, uh, uh, the English leaving England via a river uh, off into to, to the New World and talking about conquest. And they're very they're very explicit. It's it's about fame and glory, but it's fame and glory through through killing. You know, they talk about killing savages very early on in the film. It's this expedition of exactly. conquest. But when we and, yeah. and the drum beat, obviously the you've got the kind of the British sort of like that that running drum beat, um, a bit more you know I guess the pageantry and all the rest of it. When we it then goes over to uh, America, the drum beat changes and it's down a river and you have the algonquins coming back from a conquest but then what i found and i think you're absolutely right is there's an absolute disparity like the english are uh, for the most part stupid greedy yeah. uh, racist um i mean they keep reusing that word uh, savages they don't really change much of their views as the film goes on yeah. in contrast yeah. when we look at the presentation of the Native Americans, you, like you say, there's this almost overstressed idea of nobility. Of uh, uh, you know, he agrees. That, I think the chieftain agrees before anyone. That, okay, you know, I'd, I would go and talk to them if I could. Bearing in mind, at the end of the film, one of their warriors is killed. Thomas shoots him. They bring him back, and all this stuff happens. And he kind of lays down arms and all the rest of it. Uh, it. It almost seems like overkill to have him then turn up at the end and go, oh, my brother, John Smith, you know, um, you're always welcome here. <laughs> so you don't need to do this stuff. Why can that not exactly still be like, some no. kind of... We've got a long way to go here, folks. This is... Yeah. this is I you know, And so really the question for me kept coming up who is this for? It's not it's exactly. not for the Native Americans, as in contemporary Native no. Americans. It's not. It's a self-serving, no. ameliorative myth that allows for this kind of can't we all can't we all just get along? Can't we just kind of forget this stuff? You know, if we just did this. Yeah. And now it feels very, very disingenuous. It feels very one directed. Yeah. And I think this film stands as a kind of we're trying to sort of pacify Native American representation. We're trying to make a comment yeah. on racism, on what should, you know, should happen. I, I think it's very, very flawed. It's very, very flawed. Yeah. 
the fact that we are still looking at a Disney movie that first of all took a real life story and sort of like <sighs> rewarped it to a sort of like unbelievable degree <laughs> white western sensitivity especially considering the actual horrors of what mm. happened I don't even want to get into that because mm. that's not what this podcast yeah, is about yeah, yeah, yeah. so so like so what I want to think about is like Pocahontas as a character yes we've kind of referenced already she had this sort of like mysticism to her and you know clearly going against the ways of her father and not wanting to be constrained which is why she's like the final notch in the totem pole of the adventurer Disney princesses you know because I think the first three were like the wishful Disney princesses and like this this the, these four I would call them all the adventurer Disney princesses or the wistful Disney princesses they always wanted something else mm. they wanted something more so hers was always like I want to see what's just around the river bend but Pocahontas as a character yeah she is quite headstrong she is curious um and she does in fact basically she ends the war technically and obviously there's that whole instant love trope as well even though obviously between her and john smith it's not really instant it actually takes a while but there is a sort of mutual fascination of the other mm. And I think that to me is the other reason why I think Pocahontas was quite memorable to me as a child, mm. because it didn't really follow the Disney script of girl meets boy, fall in love, end up together happily ever after. It actually ended up being a case of girl meets boy, fall in love, little war happens, girl regrets meeting boy, and boy has to go home, girl wishes him goodbye, mm. <laughs> which is... Which is <laughs> which was honestly a breath of fresh air <laughs> but, mm. but yeah um uh, I, I think i think yeah. for me with that ending though there, there is a bit of ambivalence because on the one hand her, her desire kind of is to eventually is to be with john smith and to really go out yeah. and she's going to see this this world beyond the, the conventions of a society but actually it flips back on itself because she, yeah while we don't really know within the, the fictional world of the film what she does there's very much a sense that she is going to become part of that society she says i'm needed here and even though the only thing i can think of where it allows for that notion i guess of, of a freedom of the continuation of being free to choose it, well it's in the choice because her father says to her you must choose and so she does make a choice but she makes a choice to fold herself back into being perhaps a, some kind of mediator, some form of, of, of arbiter, someone with, with wisdom. What I guess I'm saying about that is that I was thinking about the character of Smith. And Smith, for me, actually stands out as the, the, the actual archetypal prince in all of its aspects that we thought applied maybe yeah. to the originals, but actually is here in its, yeah. in its fullest form. So like he's, yes. he's, you know, he looks physically attractive, got some great hair. He's gallant. Like he throws himself off the ship and goes to find, yeah. um, goes to bring Thomas back to the ship in the waves. He's self-deprecating. Yeah. He, he listens. He's self-sacrificing as well. Um, yeah. The thing that occurs to me, though, and, and and these are meant to be seen as as positive attributes. He's there's this idea, though, he's just racist. And even though it's the fact that he's talked before about killing people, about killing savages, he says it. I feel like she becomes instrumental for his racial awakening. It wasn't really clear to me what he really brought her, uh, like what what real under other than again an embrace a embracing of otherness. For that song colors of the wind while a beautiful song i think is very much about 
this is me dragging him along to make him see one his own kind of sense of racial supremacy but also the other side of it seems to me to be and then, and then of course connecting it with with a kind of you know folkloric mysticism and so on yeah but the thing is taking all these movies combined mm, yeah. because i'm trying to like synthesize again yes. main tropes for me all disney princesses were the adventurer disney princesses mm. um what they all had that was quite different from the first set is they were all quite instrumental to the driving of their plots um the story was actually about them for once it actually centered on what they wanted and what they desired and what they were willing to go for ariel was still kind of trapped in that zone of like the early three i think she was the transition between those first three and the latter three of the four that we have spoken about because she does you know drive her plot and all that stuff but in the end she really is just like a very pretty cardboard box <laughs> I'm sorry, but like she literally couldn't say anything and she seemed more enamored with the prince than she had any real reason to be there. Like she she was just there and she was like, oh, but that whole scene of, oh, but daddy, I love him. I felt like, could you behave yourself, please? You, you don't know this man. Um, no, and, but that's not, as, you know, that's not as a father what you're meant to feel. You're meant to go along with it and, and make sure that she... Yeah, no. No? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that's nonsense. Secondly, right, the fact that King Triton had the power to make her human this entire time stressed me oh. out. But I don't. But like, I, I don't. I don't want to yeah, get into okay, that. Okay. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll leave that. But I, 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 I don't I, want I to get into that. You can understand why he didn't do it because you have. Mur mur yeah, I mean, like obviously, he, like he, he, he had good reason. They were literally eating his people. Mm. Ultimately, right, all four Disney princesses. They were more instrumental to the progression of their plot. Um, they actually asserted themselves to varying degrees, particularly in the case of Jasmine. And yeah, I think compared to the first three, at least, this is me like really giving like my final thoughts. They were more pleasurable to watch. I didn't go into a rage fit. Uh, they actually did things that were reasonable within the context of the movie. Um, not always reasonable, Ariel, I'm looking at you. So in that sense, I would say they were definitely a massive upgrade. Mm -hmm. The stories were still problematic, sure, but the princesses themselves were a massive upgrade. I could actually tolerate them as characters, sometimes even enjoy them. Um, yeah. How about you? Yes, uh, very similar, actually. Um, I think that the thing that occurred to me watching all sort of four of the films is... One, I mean, Aladdin's a little bit because obviously Aladdin is is meant to be the the sort of central figure of that, but they very much try to establish with each of these heroines uh, a motivation, a sense of a personality that was not just completely, you know, vacant as we saw before. The driving momentum for a lot of them was, was as you say, a desire to get out, a curiosity with with otherness, with, with things that are beyond the, the conventions of the world in which they were brought up. Yeah, so I think it's just sad that a lot of it in the end becomes sublimated to a conventional conclusion. Uh, on the other hand, though, in terms of certain romances, there are, at least it's about a recognition of something that extends beyond just being physically attracted to someone else or some notion of destiny. 
The only other thing I would want to say about, I think, these four films uh, that really did stand out to me, there's an idea recently that Disney are kind of like trying to wokeify or trying to revise what they've done. And in a sense, they, they do do that. Um, but the, as if this is something, though, that is completely new to the last maybe five years. And what occurs to me with with the films in the 90s is they are looking back and they're saying, well, there's a critique there. And there's a kind of attempt to get away from some of those conventions. And you can clearly see that both within the princesses themselves, like you say, how they're presented and what their motivations are. Uh, it's also kind of seen in the relationships, the, the slightly greater emotional depth to the relationships. Very slight, though. Um, so, yeah, I felt... Growing up in the 90s, I remember them far more vividly than the others that we watched uh, and did yeah. feel that kind of wave Absolutely. of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming back into this. Uh, I remember and can remember that some of the feelings attached to, especially, as you say, when you, when you think about the music and the animation. Um, yes. Yeah, so these were a bit more enjoyable, but then also very, very insightful as well because it's suddenly like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh right, yeah, Pocahontas. Yeah. Not not exactly the <laughs> wonderfully progressive, you know, no. bringing together of different peoples and creeds and races. I mean, they tried though. Yeah, they tried. I, I, they really tried, but like, yeah, it wasn't the same. Something that was different about these movies as well was that for all four of them, with the exception of Aladdin, that was about Aladdin. With the other three, I thought it was kind of interesting that the male character was introduced before the female. Mm. Like, the love interest was always introduced before the actual character. Mm. So, in, like, A Little Mermaid, we first saw Prince Eric on the ship before we ever saw Ariel. Like, we, we didn't even see her until about a couple of minutes into the movie. Same thing with the other two. And I, th I, I thought it was kind of interesting that Disney would first tell us the man that this woman is going to come rescue. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, okay, thanks. Yeah. Well, I, like, like we were talking about before, I think with a with a couple of them, well, with with I think Ariel to some extent, but but especially for Beauty and the Beast, especially for Aladdin, and I think also for Pocahontas, these women did become instrumental to some form of yeah. self actualization on the part of these men. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. what I'm saying is that you provide the male characters with these dimensions of the things that they desire, the things that they want, yeah. and then, of course, the things that they might need. And I know that's a kind of classic thing within, you know, characterization and looking at what kind of makes yeah. for a more complex, rounded sort of character. And it's not to say that, that the... I, I think in contrast, like you said, with the originals, we're, we're in a totally different... You know, we're in a whole new world. Mm. <laughs> to cut, 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 ten cut, points, kind of. Um, but <laughs> uh, uh, kind of. But uh, at the same time, they're still very much sublimated to a formula. Um, yeah. yeah. So we will see, I guess, uh, what happens. So this is kind of the early uh, Disney Renaissance. Um, say a little bit, yeah. Emo, about that. You said, um, you said before, you see Pocahontas as a kind of uh, a pivoting moment, bridge point. Yeah, bridge yes. point. Yeah. That was like break point. Mm. 
honestly, I've always thought about Disney princesses as pre-Pocahontas and post-Pocahontas because I think Pocahontas was the first time when the script was flipped a bit. Every other princess before Pocahontas was get the man, get together happily ever after. And then Pocahontas was when it was like, get the man, get together, massive crisis. Okay, bye. <laughs> and, and, and that was like, for me, like significantly different compared to all the other Disney princesses. So for me, I think Pocahontas especially was the first time the agency of the princess superseded the desire for like a romantic subplot and that's why i kind of always saw it that way because after pocahontas every princess after that wasn't seeking a romantic subplot it it certainly is something where in the end the romance i think usually ends up absorbing or or kind of completely taking over exactly this, this other mo- motivation that's kind of what i mean yeah where yeah. pocahontas doesn't concede to that at the end she, she it's clear that there's something else that she's gonna do yeah 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 exactly um i think disney only really goes up from here hopefully so next week we're going to be looking at i think we're picking the next three disney princesses down the mm-hmm. line um which would be mulan tiana and uh, merida mm-hmm. And I think this would be like the second renaissance that we are basically looking into, yeah. or more like the modern set of Disney. Late princesses. renaissance Disney. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. The late renaissance before we get to essentially the contemporary. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what, it's, it's like a really awesome trip down that memory, memory lane. lane and being able to really dissect these things yeah. again with a little more... Um, understanding and mm. a little more nuanced than you would be able to yeah. get as a. I I, I don't think it was as shocking as the last one. No, um, but <laughs> no. It, it is like we were saying. It does inform. I think watching the films like this in that kind of chronological order, you can start yeah. to see the connections, and you can start to see where they've tried yes. to make uh, subversions and so on. It's not completely yeah. there, but it's definitely something that Disney has always had it on its mind, I think, or at least that the, the yeah. company, uh, while knowing that they do yeah. have to sell a product that hits the, yes. the quintessential stuff that was established <laughs> in the classic era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, thanks for listening everyone and join us next week when we're going to be discussing three more Disney princesses and over analyzing the hell out yeah. of everything. Okay. So. I would also have to add this, this other bit where you go. So please remember to like subscribe. <laughs> we're not doing like, and subscribe. subscription is optional. Okay. Subscription is optional. People <laughs> recommend it to your friends. All right. So, <laughs> Tell your friends. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so until next week, I've been Imore and James. Alright. Um see you next time on Even More Eyes. And see. Hey. <laughs> and stop recording okay. in three, three, two, two one. Oh shit. <laughs>